Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. And it ended with, um, after people saw the sign Jesus performed, and I bring this up because this is going to come back up today. I want you to remember what they said, and then later, kind of what they say to him later. So it says, after people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. I think the phrase the prophet probably indicates they think he's the Isaiah that's coming before the Messiah comes. They're they're kind of forgetting that John was that Isaiah and Jesus is the Messiah. Um, but it's a lot to pin all your hopes on a Messiah. So they, they're seeing him as a really important prophet who's kind of heralding the return of the Messiah. Um, and maybe partly because uh, with all the things he's done, he hasn't yet vanquished Rome, which is what a lot of people were expecting the Messiah would do. All right, so, but that's, they, he does this bread thing. He feeds the, the populace. They see that as what the Messiah, the king, the, the just ruler is going to do, is going to take care of the poor and the hungry as part of his, his role. So they see him do that and they think this, this must be the prophet. And um, so they're, they're, they want to make him king and Jesus knows it's too early. He doesn't really ever want to be king. That's not why he's here. He is king, uh, but he's here to suffer, to die. Um, he'll come back later as king. So he doesn't want them to make him king. So he's trying to get away. Um, but also he's been trying to get away anyway. He still hasn't had a proper moment to really grieve John. And um, and he hasn't even really been able to catch his breath because everywhere he goes, they're there. He tried to cross the river and people flocked to him on the banks and and he tried to go back across the river and people flocked to him on the banks and and he, he just can't seem to get it. So what he does at this point, the very next statement, <coughs> and we're going to pick it up in Mark 6, actually, um, but we'll we'll come back to John 2, but we're going to pick it up in Mark 6, verses 45 through 52. Then the very next sentence, it's really important to see that this is a continuation of Jesus trying to get some time by himself. What it says is immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So he doesn't want them to make him a king. So he's dismissing the crowd, whatever that means. He's trying to get away. He's he's sending them away. You know, how, how he does that, we don't know. But But in the process, he tells the apostles, get in a boat and you go ahead to Bethsaida. And they are taking the only boat. We saw a reference to that last week, but they're taking the only boat Jesus and the apostles have. So it's it's really an interesting thing for him to say, take the boat, go ahead of me across the lake. I will meet you there. Their assumption must have been he was going to walk around. And as Anne very helpfully pointed out to us last week, it's about a 13-hour walk around. It's about a two-hour walk across the boat. So they aren't expecting to meet up with him for a while. Um, and uh, so he sends them off. But even by sending them off in the boat, you know, the, the, he's he's trying to get some time by himself. The apostles are gone now. It's even possible because every time they take off in a boat, people around the, the shores are, are are seeing the boat and saying, there's Jesus and flocking to where he is. So maybe this is even a decoy or a little misdirection that as they go off in the boat, maybe the crowds will follow them and he can get some rest or some time to grieve or some time to pray. So this is kind of the plan here. So he sends them off. It says, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So this is it. This is his moment. He's finally going to go do that. Now, at this point, Mark doesn't give us a, a, a much of a marker. He simply says later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. So probably about an hour later, we're guessing. Not, not a huge length of time. Could be a little longer because we're about to find out that the apostles are having a hard time because of the weather. So maybe it's taking them a lot longer to get across the lake. So maybe it's a couple hours. Um, but either way, he he's up alone praying for a while. And then it says this. 
Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He was alone. He finally made it. Finally was able to do that. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. So again, we don't know how um, how late he actually got off to the mountain by himself, by himself, how late he sent them. Either the weather's really bad and they've been rowing for hours and hours, which is possible, um, although you'd think they would just come back if that were happening, or it was pretty late already, which I think is more likely, and it's just a couple hours and he is, and that, that dawn, it's just before dawn, it's just really a couple hours after they started rowing. So it says, shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. What I love about the way that Mark, and really the, the, the other um, gospel writers who write about this, talk about this, is how sort of insignificant it is at first. It's not like he's like, I'm going to go show them this cool miracle. I'm going to go walk out on the lake. It's really more just like, oh, they're in the boat. They're having some issues. I'm going to go to them. So I'll just walk to them because I'm Jesus and the water is not a hindrance to me. So it's it's almost, I mean, I, I, everything is in God's plan. I get it. It is a big miracle. But but for it being sort of in a lot of our, our mythos of Jesus, this is kind of the miracle, right? This is like, ooh, Jesus walks on water. That's proof of his godhood. But I think we can see that throughout his ministry to Jesus, the much more important miracles he did were all miracles of compassion. This is barely a miracle of compassion. I suppose it is because he is going to the apostles who are struggling. But this is not like healing somebody. And I think God would say the real miracles of the Messiah are feeding people. Like they said, this is the prophet, right? Feeding people and healing people. This is almost just a miracle of convenience in a sense. I don't want to overstate it because, again, there's a plan behind everything. But I just love the way the writer says that. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. It's just like he just went out to them walking, happened to be on the lake. Uh, he was about to pass them by. Now, that's a weird statement. So I, was he going to them or was he actually just planning on going to the other side? <laughs> it's unclear here because at first it sounds like it's saying he went out to them. Um, but maybe that just means by happenstance. Maybe this is even less of a, an intentional miracle than it looks. And really all he's doing is instead of going around the lake to meet them on the other side, he's just going to go straight across. And because he doesn't have to deal with the wind the way they do, he'll get there before them. And they happen to see him as he passes by. It's a little unclear to me, you know, what's intentional, and what's not. But that's the sequence of events. It says he was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. Now, you can say whatever you want about old time superstitious people before science, but I think if you saw somebody walking on the water, you also might be inclined to think something supernatural was happening. Um, and there's the wind, and there's the waves, and the storm. So picture, this is not calm water. This is not, this is an eerie night, right? This this would be a great ghost story. It just doesn't happen to be one. You know, the, the, the rain is coming, and the winds are blowing, and the waves are crashing. And then there's this figure that's just gliding along the water, you know, walking along it. And I think it's pretty reasonable that they thought this is something very spooky. So they cried out because they saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. So again, I, I just love the picture. They're terrified, they're crying. He sees that they're afraid and he speaks to him in his voice, in his calming voice. And he says, hey, it's just me. I, I'm not a ghost. Uh, it's just me, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them <laughs> and the wind died down. Now, you may notice if you've heard this story before, there's a whole part that was skipped. 
We're going to read that part in a little bit. And it's the part where Peter offers to walk on the water and Jesus, and he walks on the water and we have that whole story. It's fascinating to me that that is not in this version because this version is told by Mark. And as you may recall, Mark is actually telling Peter's version. So it appears to me that Peter did not want to make a big deal of himself in this story. I think it's some humility. I think he's like, you know, I know I had a part in this story, but it wasn't that great anyway. And what was great about it, I don't want to talk about. And what wasn't great about, let's not talk about that either. I mean, I just think he just doesn't want to make himself the center of this story. So when he tells the story to Mark and Mark tells Peter's story, they leave out that whole thing. Um, so, so this is what it says, though. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. So gets in the boat, the wind dies down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about their loaves. Their hearts were hardened. I think what Mark, again, as per Peter's instructions, as Mark is writing how the apostles felt about this situation, what Peter is saying is that they still were limited. They were thinking too small about who Jesus was. They didn't understand that the, the man who could make enough bread and fish out of the little bread and fish he had to feed 5,000 people, really more than that, because there's um, women and children as well. Um, oh, so maybe there were about 15,000 back to our earlier comment with Sue. So maybe that is all you need. Um, but nonetheless, the fact that he did that, they didn't, it didn't click. They, their hearts were hardened. It was hard for them to imagine that Jesus was God, even though he'd done this amazing thing, just, just done it. They still, when they saw him walking on water, that was like a whole new level for them. They've also already seen him control the storm. But again, I, I think it's reasonable. You know, it's one thing to stand in a boat and say, quiet down, and the wind quiets down. There's always a part of your brain that can say, oh, that was a lucky coincidence. But when you see a guy walking on the water, there's just no explanation. There's just nothing you can do. And 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 it's not just that he's controlling the wind and the waves. It's like, it's like he transcends them. I don't even know what it looks like to walk on water when the waves are doing this. And, you know, is he walking up and down valleys or is he just kind of walking through them? I, I don't know what that looks like. But I think the point is, it just kind of transcends. They they suddenly are realizing he is beyond all the physical aspects of life we understand. He makes loaves, feed thousands, and he walks on, on water. No one walks on water. And Mark is saying that Peter, as Peter portrays the apostles, they just were still too, too dull. They were still limiting Jesus too much. And when they saw that, they were still amazed. Had they understood who he was, I think Peter's indicating perhaps they wouldn't have been amazed. Um, I I think I can't be too hard on them. I think I would be amazed as well. So Matthew tells the same story, but again, because it's Matthew and not Mark, he's going to tell us the story about how Peter was involved in this as well. So it says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink, cried out, Lord, help me, save me, sorry, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out of his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed in the boat, the wind died down. So before we continue with the rest of that, 
this little story about Peter, there's a reason we know this story. It's an amazing story. And it tells us so much about both Jesus and Peter and the interactions and where the apostles are. I think it's just, it's an amazing story. I like the fact that Peter through Mark doesn't tell this story, but does tell Mark that the result of this story is that Peter realized how much he had been short selling Jesus. Something about what happens here is a big step for, for Peter that he begins to see Jesus as more than he was before. And this is Peter who already has declared Jesus is the Messiah, but that, that's going up a notch. Peter is starting to recognize this is not just a human Messiah. There's something else happening here that's even bigger than any of us thought. I think, you know, we, we see some typical things about Peter. Peter is, is kind of fearless. Peter is always at the front. He's a little impulsive, um, but he's also very bold. You know, and so his personality comes into play here where he sees Jesus or, or this guy who claims to be Jesus and his first thought, I'll be honest, I don't think my first thought would be, let me walk out to you. I think my first thought would be, well, come on over here. You know, the, the fact that Peter's first thought is, oh, well, I'll come to you. There is something about Peter, which is different from normal human sane people. I, it's just a little bit of a different approach to the world. And, and so he says that. He says, oh, if it's you tell me to come to you on the water. I also like the fact, because this is such a good analogy for us of faith, right? Walk, taking on faith and, and stepping out of the boat, the safety of the boat. The boat is scary, but somehow when Peter looks at Jesus standing in the middle of the storm, I think in his mind, it is safer to be with Jesus than to be in this boat. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we can learn from him, is that sometimes steps of faith appear to be really scary, but being closer to Jesus is always better, even if it seems safer to stay in the boat. So that's one thing. Second thing is, I love Peter's, for someone who often thinks he knows everything, I really like the, I think a little bit extra layer of humility that Peter has learned, in that there's no pretension here that he knows for sure it's Jesus. He's like, well, if it is you, he's just not going to make presumptions. You know, he's, he's like, if it's you, tell me to come. He completely is going to trust Jesus, if he says it's him and he wants him to come, he's not, I don't think he's being faithless in that, but I think he's also not presuming, which given that he's someone who presumes a lot through the gospels, I think it's a, it's a good thing. So he says, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. I think also the assumption that Peter isn't like, well, I can walk on water too. He's just like, I can walk on water if it's your call, if you ask me to. This is in contrast to the so many times when Peter is just like, I will do this and I will fulfill this and I will commit this. So I think in a lot of ways, this is a this is a growing Peter. Now he he can go back later and be not quite so be more self sufficient. But I think we are starting to see a Peter who's becoming less self sufficient, more dependent on Jesus, and more desirous to be where Jesus is, even if it's not where Peter himself would have chosen to be. So he says, "If it's you, tell me to come to you on the water." I love Jesus' response. Jesus is like, "Sure, come. Yeah, let's give it a shot." Um, and then you cannot read this story and miss what happens next. You know, it's easy to jump to the fact that Peter starts to sink and Jesus says to him, oh, you have little faith. And you think, oh, well, poor Peter blew it again. But no, he walked on the water. That is what happened first. He steps out of the boat, he walks on the water, and he starts walking towards Jesus. And then, as I think most of us would do, about halfway to Jesus or whatever, three quarters of the way to Jesus, close enough to Jesus coming in, as he gets close and closer to Jesus, he looks around him and the wind is blowing and the waves are blowing and he's walking on water and suddenly he realizes this is crazy. Nobody can do this. What is happening here? What have I just done? I, I just think that would be, I, I know that that 
I tend to, in my Christian life, be someone who, I, I, I don't know that I've ever stepped out of the boat on the water. That's a huge thing. But I do tend to be someone who moves out to the end of the limb. And I do know that there are there are things that, that and, and maybe it's just my personality. I don't want to claim any credit for any of this. But I know that I tend to do to take these risks. It's part of who I am. And I know there have been times that I've stepped out in a risk and then gone, what in the world am I doing? This looked like it made sense when I started. But now uh, the wind is here, the waves are here, uh, the boat would be better. It, so all of these processes for him, I think, are very normal. I just think he's I, there's, there's more to applaud here in this story about Peter than there is to dismiss. He asked to come out, he stepped out, he followed through, but then, yeah, he begins to sink. But even as he begins to sink, what does he do? Lord, save me. Again, still faith, still the right approach. Because again, the other option is he starts to sink and he tries to swim back to the boat. That's what a lot of us would do. But he's just like, no, wait, 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 Jesus, you're still standing on the water. You save me. And immediately, I like that, immediately Jesus reached out his hand. That again gives him the impression Jesus is poised. He's ready. He's already reaching out. You know, he's not going to let Peter drown. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And he says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Okay, I've got to read this with a twinkle. I just can't hear Jesus saying this condemnatorily in a condemning way. I just made up a word. I can't hear Jesus saying this in a condemning way. You know, I, to me, it's like he's like, oh, man, you were so close. You know, you, 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 you were walking on water, dude. What happened? You know, you, you were so close. You had faith enough to step out. Why did you doubt? What made you lose track in the middle? And you have to realize this moment, as with Jesus saying this, it's a moment none of the other apostles have because they didn't step out of the boat. You know, if 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 Peter has lack of faith because he came partway on the water and started to drown, what does that mean of them? I mean, I, I don't think this is much of a of a of a a, a um, judgment on Peter. I, I think it really is this this moment that they have together where Peter and Jesus are like, oh, we're having this moment. And the rest of the apostles are still back in the boat. Jolene, I see you're raising your hand. Go for it. Well, uh, I actually kind of think of it too. Uh, Dave, you know this about me. I'm a substitute teacher. And I know there's uh, a couple of, uh, or at least one uh, mom that's homeschooled in this group. It reminds me, of the, uh, I think of Jesus's question almost like a, like a teachable moment of, like, I'm going to ask you this to make you think about what when did you doubt <laughs> and, and why did you start doubting so i think it's more of a uh i want you to think about this kind of question than a, a than as you said than a statement of condemnation yeah 100 and i think the answer if you just read the text the answer is that he started to doubt because he took his eyes off jesus and put them on the wind and the waves and i think that would be what jesus is leading him to you know for a second you forgot that it was me that was going to keep you safe and when you did forget, then what did you do? You cried out to me again. So it's, there's an affirmation in there too of what was right. Let me finish this paragraph and then I'll take any other thoughts you guys have on these, this story. Um, and when, because John's is different than either of these two stories in a really, I think, fascinating way. And I'm not sure I know why. And I want to hear why you guys think it is. But first, let's just finish this. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the son of God. Um, okay, so any comments on Mark and Matthew's version of this story um, or on the story itself? Any thoughts, anything stand out to you guys? So 
like what you said, I mean, it makes sense with everything that he kind of said it with a twinkle in his eye or whatever. But I don't know, like you have little face sounds kind of like harsh to me, like just the words. Yeah, it doesn't to me, but I can understand why it does. And there's no way for us to know for sure because it is a tone thing. But I think I've got. Well, I mean, it doesn't really it. make any sense with an, with the rest of it, though. To be I harsh, think. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think I it's like think it when he uses it in the boat before, where they are worried <clears throat> because he's asleep, and he says, "You have little faith. Why are you so afraid?" And it's more like you don't need to be worrying. Why are you spending your time that way? Yeah. yeah, it's almost, I, I think it, he uses it a lot with the apostles. And I think I've just gotten used to reading those not as harsh statements, but as encouraging ones. And they do fit the context of all the stories, but it, it's impossible to know for sure. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go toe to toe on this with anybody. But I do think it it fits the context of most of the, most of the stories. And it comes across to me more as a, yeah, it's a, it's a recrimination, but to me, it's a very gentle one. And it's more of a trust me, trust me, I'm here. It's okay. Yeah. You know, why were you worried? You don't have to be worried, like Lorraine said. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes sense. I like what you said, too, about the idea of him thinking that it's like safer with Jesus, being near Jesus, than being in the boat. And, and that would be like a reason to like, kind of do it because before it's kind of like, okay, I don't know. I mean, it still is kind of weird and crazy, but I mean, that actually like makes sense. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's the motivation that makes the most sense for Peter. He's not just showing off. This is not worth that. He's not, you know there just doesn't the only motivation that makes sense is he is literally look we're in this boat in the middle of a storm jesus is standing over there in the middle of the storm i know last time we were in a storm jesus was the guy who made it all okay that's where i want to be i want to be with jesus and and i think it is a super powerful lesson for us because i think we run into that all the time where jesus says i'm over here and we say but it's comfortable or safe over here and i don't want to go over there and jesus says trust me it's safer over here and, and I think that is a lesson that we constantly wrestle with. And, and again, you know, Jesus is, is kind to all of them. It's not like he gets in the boat and immediately says to the other apostles, how come none of you were out there? You know, and, and the, the fact that he, he lifts, I even, it even helps me again to remember the gentleness of Jesus, that he's lifting Jesus, Peter, Jesus is lifting Peter up as he's saying, you have little faith. It's not like he's like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to help you now. I mean, he's clearly, he's clearly reaching and helping him while he's reminding him about, you know, faith and, and trusting Jesus. And, and, uh, and I do think, again, I think when you look at the context of the other apostles, there's a common, there's a con commendation in there behind that. You know, you did walk partway out here. Why did you doubt halfway out? Well, the other apostles didn't even get that far. So I think it's almost impossible to see it as not see it as a kind of a special moment between Peter and Jesus where Peter you know, I think he's gained something really valuable here in this moment. Um, yeah, no, that makes more sense. That makes more sense too, because even just when I think like, I mean, it's not surprising to me that that this would amaze them. I mean, like, because 
like even I mean I guess the feeding of the 5,000 was I mean yeah that's a huge thing but um but like even with us like we'll see huge amazing things or experience it and and yeah and it'll like help our belief a lot but I mean we need to see kind of those like over and over again you know to really like cement it in we do and it is interesting to me that it is Peter through Mark who says of the apostles they were hardened in their hearts they were amazed because they didn't understand who Jesus was and this is Peter who just walked on the water to Jesus who's saying that I think he is reflecting that this experience he had with Jesus just up to the notch he realized oh yeah I don't know this guy this guy's even more than I thought. Um, there's something about that experience that leads Jesus to be a little bit more, I don't, not hard on the apostles because he's one of them, but a little bit more sort of, yeah, we should have known. We should have known this is who he was. We should have known this is what he could do. Um, so that's kind of that cool sense. though, too, though, because then it just shows how much more Jesus actually like pursues us and how much yeah. more is actually on him. For sure. One, 100%. <laughs> 100%. Any other comments on this story before we go on to John's version? I was I was about to say that tying this in with the feeding of the 5,000 that that the disciples have seen when they obey good things happen. I mean, and, and they didn't doubt. They didn't say, well, I mean, once he said get the fish and the bread, they went and did it. They didn't I say, right. well, I, yeah. I keep handing this out. Why? Why didn't I run out? I think that's a good point. They they could have balked at that, but they didn't. And some of it, maybe they've been on their own mission, and they've already seen God do some things out there. Now they're back with Jesus, and they've seen Him come through a lot. Now He does this again, and that might be again why Peter's like, so so why did why did we doubt now? You know, why was it so weird now? But I, I agree with you. They they're learning as they go. And here's another point. This is the first time. Well, not the first time, but this time Peter's life is in danger in his mind. The other times it was feeding people. It didn't, it didn't sure. impact what his life or death. This one is personal yeah, to him. It's very personal. I think this is a very personal story to, to Peter. And like I say, I think sometimes we don't tell our most personal stories all the time. And I think that's why Peter didn't, didn't want to tell it through Mark. He's like, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. But I think it is a very personal story. I agree. It has that, feels like it has that impact on Jesus. I mean, on Peter. It's also embarrassing. Yeah, it's, it's mixed, right? Like a lot of personal stories. Some of it's good. Some of it's bad. Mm -hmm. Kind of depends on the day, right? Yep. <laughs> How you, look How at you it. tell it. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So, all right, that's good. Now, there's one thing interesting. John doesn't tell like a contradictory version, but there's this small thing that I'm just curious if you guys have a thought about. I don't. And it's that John tells this story from a different perspective. So the last two we read are actually told from Jesus's perspective, right? He sends them away. He prays. He sees them out on the lake straining against the oars. He goes for a walk and then he interacts with them. This one is actually told from the apostles' perspective. Instead of saying Jesus sent them away, it says they left. And then the whole rest of it is told in that way. And I don't know, I'm not, I'm not making a huge thing of this, but it's just an interesting difference to me that John decides to tell it that way. And that Matthew, who was there, and Mark, who, who was telling Peter's story, who was there, don't tell it from their perspective, but John does. So let's read it. He says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into the boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. 
A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So it's short. There's no Peter version in here at all. Matthew's the only one who tells that story. Um, but it's also, it's just a different perspective. It, it is absolutely told from their perspective. And and does anybody have, and I don't know that there are, maybe it's just the way John writes. I, 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 I'm, I'm really just curious. Does anybody have any thoughts on why John chooses to write it from this vantage point? I'm not sure why he, um, I'm not, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I was just kind of thinking how John like writes, you know, like his like a lot later and um, now we've talked about that before, how he'll add in other things and emphasize like other things um, because I mean, it had already been written about and yeah, and some of that. But yeah, yeah, I don't know nothing. why he would feel, because it does seem like the other stuff has already covered that. Yeah. So. Yeah, anybody else? The uh, <clears throat> ending being different in that immediately they got to uh, shore. Isn't that uh mark's version or john's version the only one who brings that out it's interesting I, I that is something i think is significant the others imply it because what the others say is that the wind died down so in other words the hindrance to getting across goes away but john does make a point of saying as soon as jesus gets in the boat they got where they were going and it does feel almost like his emphasis his point is a little different in other words, the other two stories, the point is Jesus walked on water. <laughs> in John's story, yeah, that's true. He's watching, he's approaching the boat walking on water, and that's scary. But it's almost like in, in John's story, it's about their willingness. Notice that phrase too. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. Like they they had to be convinced he wasn't a ghost before he could get on. So it's like from John's perspective, the story isn't just about Jesus doing this amazing miracle. From John's perspective, the story is about when they were in the boat by themselves, they made no progress. And when they let Jesus in the boat, then suddenly they got where they needed to go. It just feels like that's a different lesson, equally valid, but a different lesson than the others were telling. And, and that just, I'm, I don't have much more to say about that, except that seems to be part of the point is by that as he tells it in their perspective, he's also, he's telling a different, he's making a different lesson from it, I think. Anybody else have any thoughts? All right. So Mark 6, 53 through 56. So now they get to the other side. So here we go. The story continues. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. And as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. So remember, Jesus got about... It sounds like to me an hour or two to pray. I don't know that he slept, and I don't know that he got more than that. It's possible. It's possible he slept a little bit. It's possible he got more than a couple hours if they really were having a hard time on the lake. Um, but even so, it, there's not been a long period of rest for him. And now it's been all night. And now he's been helping them, and he walked across the water. Um, not only 
Is he more tired? He had to walk halfway. Uh, so now they're across the other side and immediately it picks right back up, right? It's dawn. He didn't get rest during the night. Not much, a little bit, but not much. Um, and it says they ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countrysides, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who were touched it were healed. So that's reflective of the woman uh, who was bleeding who touched <laughs> his cloak. So apparently that wasn't an isolated case. But again, the point is, like Peter, everybody wants to be near Jesus. And as they get near Jesus, that's where the you know, that's where the, um, that's where the miracles occur. So, and so it just kind of continues. He got a little bit of prayer time. He got a shock. And now immediately upon reaching the shore, it's happening again. And what do people want? They want things from him. They want miracles. They want healing. And he's doing it. He's happy to do it. Um, we're going to see John kind of touch on something that begins to happen here, that Jesus begins to call people to look a little further than their own needs. Um, or their own physical needs to start thinking a little bit deeper about the kingdom of heaven than just their physical healing. But he never does that scornfully, and he never does it dismissively, and he never seeks ceases to have compassion and heal people. Um, and Matt, Mark doesn't even really mention that here, but but John does when we get to him. But let's let's go on to Matthew. Same same story. When they'd crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. All right, now let's go to John, because John is about to launch into a, a little bit of a different uh, tack. The, the, this story leads a little bit different place. It says, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. So, the the I think that the opposite shore of the lake is a little bit unclear to me what it means. I think it means where they just landed. I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe it, maybe as we go, it'll make more sense. But wherever they are, they're either on where he just left or they're on the side he just came to. But in either case, what's happening is they realize that Jesus wasn't in the boat when it left and he was in the boat when it landed. <laughs> That's what they're realizing. They're like, wait, how does that happen? How does someone in mid-voyage end up in the boat? That's, I think, the point here. Um, then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor the disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? I think what they really mean is, how did you get here? I think that's really the point. They're like, wait, we saw the apostles leave and you weren't, in, and I guess they were on the side he left from, it sounds like, as I follow this through. But the, yeah, they're saying the apostles left, you weren't in the boat with them. Then we realized you weren't still on our side. So we've been looking for you. Now we find you on this side of the lake. When did you get here? Really meaning, how did you get here? At what point, what boat did you take? How did you arrive here? Um, and Jesus answered. So this is one of those moments. Jesus has a way of answering what people are really asking rather than what they seem to be asking. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So Jesus says this. They're like, how did you get here? You're amazing. You're miraculous. How did you arrive here? And he recognizes them as people who also were at the at the at the big uh, potluck. Well, it wasn't a potluck. That's an unfair way to call it. At the big feeding that Jesus did. But what he does is when they say to him, "How did you get here?" He says to him, "Look, 
you're not that impressed by the miracles. This is what he says to them. You're not that impressed by the miracles. You're not that impressed that I'm here and you don't know how I got here. You're not that impressed by all the people I'm healing. You're acting like you are, but you're not that impressed. You're not even impressed by the fact that I fed you all just from five loaves. You're just here because you're hungry. <laughs> you're just here because you, you ate and you liked it and you want to eat again. Um, it, it's like he's bringing them down, down to the lowest common denominator. He is kind of minimizing their, their, their following of him. He's like, you're not following me for all the real right reasons. You're just following me because you ate some bread. Let's, let's, just, let's just boil it down. You're following me because you ate some bread and some fish and you were filled and it felt good, but there's so much more going on here. That's what he's telling them. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Understand who I am that the son of man will actually give you eternal life. For on him, God the father has placed his seal of approval. I'm kind of an exciting diversion in your life, but don't mistake me for a magician or an entertainer or the guy who's gonna give you bread when you're hungry. There's really something so much bigger happening here. And I think he's not only saying this to them, but I think he is saying it to everybody who's coming to him to be healed. Because even with them, he's saying, you're not following me because I have the ability to heal. You're following me because I healed you. You're enjoying the benefits of what I'm doing, but you're missing the point of the power behind that. Who am I is what you should be asking, not how did I get here, but who am I? Like the apostles, you should be realizing that, oh, our hearts are hardened and we didn't understand who this man was, but instead you're just enjoying the benefits. And again, I don't think Jesus is begrudging the benefits or scorning them for it, but he is trying to open their eyes to something bigger happening here because this isn't going to happen forever. I'm not going to be here feeding you and healing you forever. There's something bigger at stake and something here going on. So you need to look for something more. And they get part of what he's saying in that they see that he's challenging them, right? What they hear is he says, don't work for food that spoils. And they think, well, how do we work for this eternal life? Because that's what they ask him. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Okay, so what are you saying? What is the challenge you're giving us then? What would show you that we're actually you know, willing to follow you and not just, not just looking for a free meal? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So even here, he's saying, you're still missing the point. When you're trying to figure out what works God is requiring of you, you're still trying to figure out what do we need to do to get blessed by God? What do we need to do to get food that we need, whether it's eternal or, or natural? What is it we're supposed to do? And Jesus says, what you need to do is open your eyes because I'm showing you who I am. That's what you need to do. Every miracle, every feeding, everything I've done has been to show you that I am the one that God has sent. Believe in me as the Messiah, not the prophet which is what you said after I fed people, not, you know, not just a, a good teacher. I am the Messiah. I am that guy. I am the one that you've been waiting thousands of years for. It's me. It's me. And, and you need to look to me, not just for what you need it, physically, but for everything you need to, that's the work of God. Believe me, believe me, believe in who God sent me. That's it. That's what this all boils down to is all of these miracles are to convince you who I am. All of my talks are to convince you who I am. Everything I'm doing is to convince you who I am. 
uh, they, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Okay, this is a seriously moment for me because these are the people who saw him feed the 5,000. These are the people who realize he magically got across the lake. These are the people who have watched him heal people for days on the other side of the lake, or at least for hours. These are the people who have seen sign after sign after sign. That's why they're following him. And he says, you're not really here because you believe the signs and you believe in my power. You're just here because you like the bread. And they prove that he's right by then saying to him, well, before we're going to believe who you say you are, what signs can you give us? Oh, what else can he do? He's done so much in that regard right now. He says, they said, what sign that would then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Look, it is possible. This is almost unbelievable. But when you follow the threads we just did, what it feels like they're doing is trying to manipulate Jesus into feeding them again, right? They're like, what sign are you going to do to convince us? And they're like, you know what our ancestors did. God gave them manna in the wilderness. You could give us some more food, and then maybe we'd believe you, which is just crazy given that he just did that. And he accused them of only wanting food. And now it's kind of like, that's what they're saying. Just give us more food and we'll believe you. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Okay, there's a certain point here where I don't know whether they really are obtuse whether they really just keep pushing for this, or if they're beginning to understand that he's speaking metaphorically and they're saying, give us that. It's a little hard to tell, but 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 it, it it is clear to me that Jesus keeps trying to push them a certain direction and they keep not quite embracing that. And so now he just makes it super clear. You know, when he says to them, uh, the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, he means himself. He means you don't need more bread. You don't need manna. Manna was a picture of me. You don't need more loaves and fish. You need me. I keep trying to tell you that. Open your eyes and see me. That's the work of God is believe in me. Look at my miracles and stop thinking about how they benefit you only, but think about how they tell you who I am because I will benefit you in an enduring eternal way. And so finally, he just says it outright when they're like, okay, give us this bread forever. He, the Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Now, here's the thing. And I think this is what we begin to see. This is a disappointing answer for the crowd because they are so stuck on the idea that what they need is not Jesus, but what Jesus provides. And here again is a really important lesson for us. I think there are many, many times as Christians that we get stuck in this idea of, you know, what Jesus is because of what he can give us, who Jesus is because of what he can do for us, instead of the understanding that Jesus is what we need. Jesus is everything. And there isn't this, this idea that we have to add to that or find something else. Because as soon as he says to them, I am the bread of life, and he, and he goes forward, he is going to say some kind of uncomfortable things. But I don't think it's even just the uncomfortable things he says. I think it's the disappointment. It's that they're like, well, what is that? What is that crazy I'm the bread of life stuff? I was hoping for actual bread here. He's given me this metaphor. So he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. That's not a satisfying answer to you because you just don't believe it. You think I'm giving you metaphors that don't mean anything. No, I'm, I'm telling you the reality is I am what you need. 
All these, the all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Look, I'm not going to drive you guys away, but you're going to go away in a few minutes. He doesn't say that, but we know that's the case. I'm not going to drive you away. But if you don't like the reality of what I'm saying and you go away, that's unfortunate because I really want you to stay with me. But you got to stay with me, not just with me because I give you bread, not just with me because I heal your sick. It's me. It's me. I am what you need. All the rest of that is just hope and signs and miracles and examples. But it's me that you need. <clears throat> he says, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. I am the son. I will bring you eternal life. This is real. This is not just a metaphor. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, right? I think they're grumbling. They're like, I guess he's not going to give us more bread. And they're also grumbling because they're like, I don't know what he's saying, but it sounds ostentatious and blasphemous and wrong. They just don't like it. They don't like where this is gone. They said, is this not Jesus? He wants us to see who he is. We know who he is. This is Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. No one who has seen the father except the one who is from, no one has seen the father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the father. I've seen the father. I come from the father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. If they're giving even half a thought to what he's saying, they can disagree if they want. They can believe that it's blasphemous if they want. But they have to understand that he's trying to tell them something much more important than the physical things they're stuck in. So it doesn't seem realistic to me that if they're trying to understand him, they will actually hear him in espousing cannibalism, right? He's obviously talking about himself as the bread of life who will give them internal life in the way that, that bread gives them physical life. He's talking about the bread of life giving them eternal life. And he's saying that I am the son, I am the Messiah, I come from the father, I am here to grant you all of that. And I will grant it, but, but if you don't listen to God, you're not going to listen to me. But if you have been listening to God, you may hear something that sounds familiar to you. you should come with me. And in that process, he says, you're asking for bread. It's not his idea. He's using their, their points to make the metaphor. He says, you're looking for bread. I'm the bread. I'm the manna. That's who I am. I am the eternal bread. You said you wanted bread that never goes away. That's me. But again, they don't really want to hear it. So they begin to make the kind of silly arguments we make when somebody begins to challenge us in a really good way, but we don't want to hear it. Then we like go for whatever the dumbest, lowest common denominator understanding is we can, so we can dismiss it. And that's what they say. Then the Jews begin to argue, argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Oh my gosh, he wants us to literally eat him. This is a cannibalistic cult. Again, we're not that smart, and we can read it and see that is not the point he's making. He's been really clear that he's, he's drawing on their arguments to give them a metaphor that makes sense. 
but they immediately turn that against him and they're like oh my gosh he's not giving us real bread he's offering to feed us his fingers we don't want that so i think jesus does what he sometimes does in a parable type fashion remember how he tells parables so that people who don't want to listen kind of don't have to but people who are actually hungry and want to listen they can find the truth and discover it and it'll be that much more impressive and, and much more affecting for them. So I think he does that kind of thing here. When he hears them grumbling, always oh, giving his cannibalism, instead of getting into an argument and saying, no, 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 this was a metaphor. Here's what I meant. Here's how the metaphor works. It's not, instead of going through all that, he knows they don't want to listen to that anyway. They're just going to take that and go the wrong direction. So he kind of doubles down. He's like, yeah, okay, let's keep going with this theme and you can decide if you really want to listen or you just want to keep being silly about it. And that's what he says. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks the blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. So again, just to clarify, he does get very specific in a creepy way, right? But I think he's just going with their analogy but then he goes right back to the metaphor to make sure they understand what he's saying, if they want to understand. He says, why am I saying feed on my flesh? Because your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. I am the Messiah. I am your life. You take my lifeblood into you, that's where life is. You take my flesh into you, that's where life is. I don't expect that he expects them to understand he's talking about the fact that he's going to literally die on their behalf. But I do think he expects that if they really want to, they can understand he's not talking about cannibalism. He is talking about being the provision from heaven, just like manna was, but on a much deeper level, on a much more significant level, on a much more eternal level. Now, we find out this interesting thing. After all this, John drops this bomb. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. We didn't know that. This whole conversation is in the synagogue. So any of the, the sort of religious concerns, theological concerns they have about cannibalism are that much more heightened because he's having this conversation while in the synagogue. Um, let's just go on because we'll, we'll wrap up here. But he goes on in John 6, chapter 60, it says this, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? They're like, this is too much. We don't know where he's going. We're not really trying to understand him. We came, we said we wanted to understand him. We started asking him questions. Then he started saying these really big things. This is too hard. And whether it's too hard because he's actually espousing cannibalism, which would be the really most superficial way to understand him, or if it's too hard because he is claiming to be something so much bigger than any human should be, coming from heaven, the Messiah, eternal life. Either way, there's just a group of people who are like, this is hard. Is anybody really buying this? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Does it offend you to hear I came from heaven? Will it help if you see me return to heaven? Uh, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. When I talk about all this, I'm, I'm talking about something much deeper than just physically surviving because you ate some physical bread. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. The words I speak, that's that's the life. That's the endurance. That's about who I am. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. 
He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to the me unless the father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? So now we're at this crossroads. Jesus has reached the height of his popularity. And now he's not worried about keeping people who aren't really interested in listening to him. So he has weeded out those people who are just there for the bread, who are just there for the miracles, who are just there for the entertainment or, or the short-term personal benefit. He's not driven anyone away, as he said he wouldn't. But by starting to be clear about who he is, or at least challenge them to think about who he is, and give these large statements about life and eternal life, and that the will of God is to believe that he's the Messiah, by, by, by really moving into blasphemous territory, it's either true or blasphemous, he is weeding them out. People are like, well, I, it's, you know, that's fine. He, I was healed or he fed me some bread, but I can't go with the rest of this. Um, and so he's starting to narrow down those people who are really going to listen to him or at least try. And so he says to the 12, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asks the 12. This is a real question. I don't know. And it's humanity. I suppose it could be that Jesus is like, have I pushed too far? But I think it's also one of those God questions where he asks it so that they are thinking about it. They're like, why are we still here? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I hope you see that Peter's answer here is exactly what Jesus has been saying. In other words, Peter says, we get it. Where else would we go? We're not here for the free food. We're not here just for the miracles. We're here because we have come to believe you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. That is at minimum Messiah, and it does sound like it's becoming even more uh, in Peter's mind. So I think Peter's answer here is, it's really good, and I've quoted it often just because by itself it's good, right? Where would you go? Where else would we go? You are where we go. David says it in a psalm. There's nothing on earth besides, there's there's nothing in heaven besides thee, and nothing on earth I desire besides thee. Um, you know, there's just nowhere else to go. But in this case, it's not only just the right answer along those lines, it's also exactly what Jesus has been saying, that the people who are leaving think they have somewhere else to go. They think that they were coming to a man who was doing miracles, but they were coming to the bread of life. They go somewhere else. They don't get any of that. And that's what Peter is saying. We don't, why would we go anywhere else? We have nowhere else. No one else has the words of eternal life. No one else is the Holy One of God. Even when we don't understand, says Peter, we don't have anywhere else we go that's better. It's you that we need, not just your works, says Peter. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the 12, would later betray him. This is just a little foreshadowing by John. I don't think it's too much more significant. It does fit in here because he did say that about, you know, that one of you will betray me. And I know that. And I think John is just following this up with a clear statement of it. Um, I don't think it's that connected to the rest of the conversation, except to recognize that even among Jesus's own 12, there's one who can't accept what Jesus is saying, who isn't here for Jesus. He's here for some other reason. He's here for what Jesus can do. He's here for what he hopes Jesus would do. It's, it's a great sign and encouraging thing that Peter, who pretty clearly joined up for what Jesus could do, thinking that Jesus would be, would vanquish the Romans, you know, thinking that Jesus would rescue them all. But it's Peter who has now moved to a place where, sure, he wants Peter, Jesus to do that. We'll see. He still wants him to. But it's more than that. Unlike Judas, Peter is okay. If Jesus doesn't do what I want him to do, it's still Jesus I want. And Judas just isn't there. Judas is like, unless Jesus is going to be the man I think he's supposed to be, I can't follow him. You know, I need him to be what I need him to be. 
And that's kind of the message of this whole thing from John. This whole conversation from John is, are, are you following Jesus because you're following what you need him to be for you, which is, which is okay. There's a point which that's okay, right? It was okay to be fed by Jesus. It was okay to come to him for miracles. But is that as far as you go? Or do you recognize that what you need is Jesus himself and you need to be here for him? Um, I'll just close with this thought and then any thoughts you guys have is great. This reminds me of one of my favorite moments in the Old Testament. You may remember us talking about this. You may not. It was a long time ago. One of my favorite moments in the Old Testament is when Moses is having this conversation with God and, and God is kind of coaxing a pastoral heart out of Moses is what I think is happening. So God is saying things like, ah, I don't even like these people anymore. Moses, tell me you don't want me to save these people and I won't. And Moses is like, no, no, you're God. You promised you'd save me. You have to. But my favorite moment in all that is at one point God says, okay, that's fine, Moses. I'll give him the promised land. I promised him the promised land and that's all cool, but I'm not going with you. You guys will go to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And Moses says to God, I would rather not go to the promised land and be with you than go to the promised land without you. And that is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. Are you here for what I can do for you? Even if it's what I want to do for you, even if it's what I promise to do for you, or are you here for me? And, and that's where Jesus wants to lead us to, is where we're here for Jesus, to follow Jesus, to be with Jesus, understanding that Jesus is what we need rather than just the things that we see him doing for us, the causes that he can sort of affirm. So that's kind of, I think, where John's been going with all this. I think it's a really important and encouraging message. Anybody else have any thoughts on anything we read here today? Well, I was kind of thinking about like the woman at the well, like with all this. And I mean, he said similar things to her with like, you know, you like won't thirst, but it's interesting too. Um, like her response was telling people like, you know, he knows everything about me or he knows everything I did or whatever. And like, it seems like maybe she was kind of even prepped for that because, you know, supposedly she probably was lonely. I mean, she had had a whole bunch of husbands and then she was at the well, you know, like by herself. And so then she was, you know, actually wanting like Jesus um, and stuff. And so it just seemed, yeah, I don't know. It was making me think about that. And then I have like a, a question. I mean, it's like, way smaller than any of this but I mean don't you think it's weird that it starts out like with him getting out of the boat on the other side of the lake and then ends with and he said this at the synagogue yeah yes and that's why I say John kind of drops that bomb on us that oh well when did that happen I don't know I don't know how did when did he end up in the synagogue when did he end up uh in the yeah i I don't know does he do this as he's walking is it part of as he goes from village to village healing people then he ends up in the synagogue and that's where those people caught up with him yeah i agree it's a it's a it's a a, it pulls you up short a little bit but it's not impossible just the transition isn't clear yeah i agree okay um this section tonight reminded me of isaiah 55 um I'm reading Isaiah 55, verse 1. Um, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy grain and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your earnings for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. 
and let your soul delight in abundance. Incline your ear to listen and come to me here so that your soul may live and I'll make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies promised and shown to David. That's good. And so that was I, verse one, one through verse three. That's really good. And, and I think that it goes to the point that they have, they're being a little bit intentionally obtuse because the metaphors he's using are not new, right? That they would have heard these before because that passage in Isaiah is not the only place where God, you know, comp <laughs> compares himself to water, to living water, to bread, to food, to manna. The manna itself in the wilderness is compared to God throughout the Old Testament. So there, they, this isn't a new thing to them. The fact that they were unwilling to enter into this dialogue of metaphor with him has more to do with the fact that they really, they didn't want to go there. They wanted him to do stuff for him. They didn't really want to go there. And it just goes back to the fact that his very first statement about them was accurate. You're not here because of the miracles I'm doing. You're here because your bellies are full, but you got to get to something else. You've got to see that, something behind that that's more important. So I, I, I think that's good, Jolene. I think that, again, goes to the point that it's not like he's speaking in ways that they are completely unfamiliar with. These are Hebrews. They're used to metaphor. They're used to symbols. And they're used to the idea of food being that way. Even Meredith brought up the woman at the well. She does ask him at one point, how can I drink water that never goes away? And as he explains it, she doesn't balk. She's not like, oh, oh, you can't be the living water. That doesn't make any sense. What? That's really dumb. What am I supposed to do? Drink your flesh? No, she gets it. She's like, oh, oh, I see what you're saying. And, and that just shows the difference. She really wanted to learn. These guys do not. And Jesus nailed them from the very beginning. He said, you're not here because you want me. You're here because you want food. And, you know, I don't begrudge you food, but, but there's more than that. There's more than that. The man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, same idea. So I love that. Yeah, that, that Old Testament passage is a good, a good example. Well, and he's going back and forth, too. I mean, he's not just talking about, like, him being there. He's also saying, like, okay, you need to believe and see that I'm sent from the Father. Okay, you need right. to you know the will is to believe you know like in the father so yeah i mean obviously well, i don't know the, their responses are weird well one of the most amazing things to me about it is he's using their metaphors it's not even like yeah. he created this they're the <laughs> ones who brought this up he's like okay so let's talk about that and but then they get all weird about it and then i do think there's a moment where he does do the thing where they're like so weird about it he's like you know i could try to back up and explain but they don't want my explanation so i'm going i'm doubling down i'm going all in on this metaphor and i get that that's where you know they he really gives them an out if they want it they're like oh my gosh cannibalism but i really think all he's doing is just saying look if you really want to hear me hear me and i'm and yes the metaphor is apt i'm not being stupid don't you be stupid you know, he goes all in on it. And again, people like Peter get it. Peter's like, yeah, no, I understand. We, we've come to believe that. You are the bread of life. You are everything. Um, well, yeah. And it's so weird too, because these are the same people that he fed like actual bread. <laughs> right. Well, that's part of the problem is they got stuck on that. They're like, well, when are you going to feed us more actual bread? He's like, well, I'm the bread. And they're like, no, that's not what we want. <laughs> we want more actual bread. 
I, I really think that's part of it. They get stuck on the the thing that he gave them before without recognizing that it's part of something bigger. And again, I don't know about you guys, and I don't have specific examples off the top of my head, but I feel like I do that too. I feel yeah. like there are times it does something for me and I get stuck on that. I'm like, do that again. Do that again, Jesus. That was cool. Do that again. And Jesus is like, wait, no, that was to lead you to me. That wasn't to lead you to this again. That was to show you who I am. That was to remind you of my grace and my love. So quit, quit, quit waiting for me to do the same thing again. And instead, just come to me. I, I think, I think I, I definitely feel like that happens in my life a lot. So there's a this, this passage also reminded me of a, a, a song by Natalie Grant called uh, More Than Anything. And the uh, chorus talks about uh, let me want the healer more than the healing. And uh, so so I think that's that's a good point there that yeah and that's actually kind of the way he's saying to the people is that, that is. you need to that want is. me more than the food you need to want me more no, than I think the that's, I think that's exactly right on the, the only other thing I will say is I will point out that Peter's response I think is just right but it's also very human and I I, I want to say this for us too because if you come out of this thinking oh I have to I have to have a clarity of my undying devotion for Jesus and know that he's all I want at all times. You know, that's not it. Jesus is more gentle and compassionate than that. And I think Peter's response is very human. He's like, well, really, I just don't know where else we'd go. <laughs> you know, he's, he, even though he's recognizing that he is the words of eternal life and he is the Holy One of God, and that's why he's not looking for it elsewhere. There's also a part of which is just like, I just don't have any other options. So I, I think that's okay too. Sometimes that's that's as far as our faith can go is, well, I don't have anywhere better to be. Um, but Jesus wants to lead us to a place where our faith is, is not just, I have nowhere better to be, but I have come to believe that you have the words of eternal life and not just the words. I have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. So I think that's that's where God's always leading us. It's always leading us to Jesus. I, I was talking with some friends of mine just the other day and we were we were talking about the fact that you know, they were talking about how do you, they were wrestling with certain theologies of churches. And they were like, so this church has this theology and this church has this theology. And we don't really like either of those. How do we decide where to go? And between the three of us, as we were conversing, I think the conclusion that we, that, that, that we all came to, I'd already come to, but they came to, as I discussed it with them, was you go to the church where devotion to Christ is really what it's about. And the theologies can be a little iffy here and there. But if it's really about Christ, if they're really promoting Christ, if they're really, if that's what it is, then you can you can work your way through some some peripheral theologies. We're not talking about anything, you know, crazy, but but you know, that's the question. Are they pursuing Christ? Is it really about Christ? And I think that's what Jesus is saying here too. So thank you for joining us. The journey is a ministry of discipleship matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.